Thomas Edison, Richard Branson, John F. Kennedy, Mozart, Michael Jordan, Will Smith. That sounds like a list of highly successful titans in a variety of vocations. Why is it that we rarely hear that they have or had ADHD? And you know what we hear even less about? Serena Williams, Emma Watson, Mel Robbins, Whoopi Goldberg, Agatha Christie, Aaron Brockovich, Cher. Yeah, the successful women navigating ADHD. And that's exactly why I started this podcast, ADHD for Smartass Women. I'm your host, Tracy Atsuka. I'm a lawyer, not a doctor, a lifelong student, now a coach. I'm also the creator of Your ADHD Brain is A-OK, a system that helps people like you figure out what they should do with their life. And we're here today to talk ADHD, your strengths, your symptoms, your workarounds, and how you proudly stand out instead of trying to fit in. I credit my ADHD for some of my greatest gifts. And you know what? I spy a happier life for you, too. So without further ado, a shiny new episode is starting now. Hello, I am Tracy Otsuka, and I wanted to welcome you to episode number 129 of ADHD for Smartass Women. This episode is brought to you by Your ADHD Brain is A-OK. It's my six-step system that helps you to answer that, what do I do with my life question? And we will be opening enrollment this Friday, June 25th. So if you want more information, you can join our waitlist at tracyoutsuka.com forward slash waitlist. And you, if you want more general information on the program, go to episodes 91 and 92 of this podcast. So today I am so excited to introduce you to Mernal Gokhale. Hi. Gosh, I hope I got it right, Mernal. Yes, you did. <laughs> Mernal is a fantastic writer. You know, I became aware of her through some articles that she's written for Attitude Magazine. She is also a business analyst and mental health advocate based in the Midwest. Mernal just published her first book, Saya Unveiled, South Asian Mental Health Spotlighted, to increase education and acceptance on mental health in the South Asian diaspora. Her future goals include teaching, self-defense, and developing a health and wellness app. Mernal, did I get all of that right? Yes, you did. (laughs) Wonderful. So can we start by talking about your ADHD diagnoses? Okay, so I got diagnosed as an adult, mid-20s. Throughout my childhood, I struggled with things like following directions, organization, cleanliness, um, so being able to interpret and respond to social cues. And I never saw a therapist in my life until early 20s. And that was when I was in college. And um, I went to my college's psychology clinic to get treated for social anxiety. And then about five years later, I went again to a therapist. And then that's the person who 
got me diagnosed based on the issues that I had that I had reported that I had just gone over right now. And I have explored both the natural therapeutic and, and medicine routes of treatment. So when you were in college, you basically thought, oh, this is just social anxiety. That's what this is about, because that's what you were told. And then as you got older, and I, I'm assuming what you got into the workforce and you noticed other things coming about and you went back to get re-diagnosed. Is that what you just told me? Um, yes and no. So I went to college therapy for anxiety itself. So that is something I deal with genuinely. So that's the reason that I think it got missed. And because I was working with a college graduate student in the psychology clinic, being that she was just a student, she probably didn't know how to pick up on neurodivergence, particularly in females that appear high-functioning. Yep. Absolutely. Okay. So have you always felt different than others? I mean, was this just something that was part of your, you know, part of Myrnal? Yes. I think that I grew up thinking that I was different and that something was the matter. For as far as I can remember, so what I was told in childhood was um, that up until age, I think one and a half or so, um, I seem to have quote unquote, some understanding of social situations. And what I meant by, I mean by that is like my parents would say I would make eye contact. Okay. I would have a big smile on my face when I saw their humans, I would say hi and bye. And then suddenly that went out the door and I became incredibly bashful and anxious around other humans and this carried about. And on top of being shy. It was also that I had difficulty picking up on social cues, being able to carry on a conversation, start and initiate a conversation, pick up on things like the nonverbals and in people. And it was just seen as shy, extreme shyness throughout my whole life. And in school, I would get in trouble year after year by teachers for missing instructions and them having to repeat instructions several times for my benefit. Academically, I would do good in the subjects that I had an interest in, which is like reading language arts. And then I would struggle in math and science. And I think that that's particularly because those subjects require a high degree of memorization and working problems and problem solving. And I didn't have the attention span for it. Growing up in school, I wouldn't do my homework every day unless one of my parents was sitting there in the room to make sure that I got it done. So, yeah, that's about the gist of it. So what has changed since you were diagnosed? In addition to being able to better understand and advocate for myself, I have a better... So I've explored medical treatments and I've explored different types of therapies is, I guess, the short answer. And I've, I'm kind of more conscious, I think, about how I behave and communicate around others and, and more conscious about things like the types of jobs that I take on, too. So you've come to understand yourself better and what works for you and what doesn't. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that is what I'm saying. And have you been successful with medicine? So I tried. So when I first got diagnosed, I used Wellbutrin for about two years. It's an antidepressant, but it's commonly used like, like as an alternate mm -hmm. to stimulant medications. 
The psychiatrist said that if I am a person that deals with anxiety, then she hesitates to give me stimulants. And that's why she gave it to me. So for those two years that two, three years I was on it, I will say that um, plenty of people commented on how much more alert, how much more focused, how much more social, communicative that I'd become. And Mm -hmm. I just felt like more of kind of a stronger sense of confidence and desire to um, kind of be present and social as well throughout my years using them. And so the first time that I'll, so I'll say that one of the first times that I knew that the medicine was working was when I went to a chiropractor and he did some sort of an autonomic nervous system test. And he said that it came up at almost 100. And then I will say that I feel like I developed this attitude when I was on the medicine. Uh, Like before I used the medicine, let's go back. I had a very avoidant attitude when it came to like social experiences because I think that I subconsciously developed this defense mechanism over the years of what's the point of going on this date, going on this job interview, this outing, this whatever, if if I'm socially inept and it's going to go over awkward and painful and... I can't connect with others. But then I noticed that after the medicine, like I wouldn't be so avoidant. And I kind of developed this new attitude of you at least I would give myself this pep talk of you at least have to try this because if if you don't, then you'll regret it and wonder what if. Ah, and it worked, right? Yeah. So um, the first job that I took when I started the medicine so I had started a new job shortly after I took it, and the the new boss was pretty blown out of the water with um, the speed and quality of my work. And mm-hmm. at the same time as working that job, I was also studying. Um, so I got a college degree from like a bachelor's in 2013. I graduated with less than a 3.0. But when I took this new job upon starting the new medicine, I was taking some web coding classes at a technical college, which I never thought I'd be able to do. And I've, I earned a 3.4 average in those classes, all while also working and doing such a good job with, with the wow. boss or, and like yeah. really impressing the boss with the quality of my, work, of my work at the same time. Ah, okay. So I have to ask you, do you have a bird? <laughs> A bird? Is that a bird or is it a cat? cat. Oh my gosh. I'm sorry. I, oh, please don't apologize. I love that you have a cat. No, it, <laughs> no, it gives our interview a little bit more spirit. How about that? <laughs> don't good. worry about it at like all. The way you think. Yeah, absolutely. We're not into that linear kind of way of interviewing. So What made you decide to write your book? And did I get the title right? Is it pronounced Saya? Yes, it is. Okay, so let me repeat it again. Saya Unveiled, South Asian Mental Health Spotlighted. And I believe it's available on Amazon. And I will post the link in the show notes and any other links that you want me to post, you know, with respect to, frankly, anything, you just need to let me know. Okay, cool. So what inspired me to write it was the fact that, uh, so I'm of Asian descent, my family's from India. And um, so when quarantine first started, I took a class on a free class on how to write a micro memoir. And the reason being because throughout these years in my career, I've worked in freelance journalism, news reporting, technical writing, web content writing, but I'd never learned like the art of storytelling in book form. And I thought that taking the class will kind of be able to teach me how to write stuff in a more interesting, 
detailed, I guess, fluff writing, if you want to call it that. (laughs) And so I went ahead and took it. And the teacher at the end, she gave us resources on free publishing and stuff. And she taught us about self-publishing through Amazon Kindle. And I was like, well, I want to write a book now, but I don't know what it would be about. And after doing some brainstorming, I figured that mental health and psychology and the human brain is one thing I'm passionate about. And so is writing and so is journalism and so is culture. And then I thought to myself, you know, in my freelance journalism career, I've worked for a black paper in my city. I've worked for a Latino paper in my city. And throughout the years, I have covered mental health awareness events in the city for both papers that illustrate mental health stigma in both communities. But I'm not hearing much about the stigma of mental health in Asian communities. And furthermore, I didn't, I hadn't met a lot of Indians and South Asians. So people in my community when I was going to therapy. So why not kind of bring to light that? So I looked up South Asian mental health organizations and I reached out to them saying, do you have any employees, any followers, anyone that you know that wants to tell their story in mental health? And several people reached out and I just kind of talked with them and I kind of wrote their stories in somewhat of a journalistic style. Wow. I I just have to tell you, just hearing you speak, I am so enamored by your brilliant brain. I just, I, I just love it. So my son, who has ADHD, he got himself into college by creating a portfolio on the model minority. And his portfolio included rap songs and, you know, a paper on the subject. And he was focused on East Asia, specifically Japan, because I'm half Japanese. But so I want you to talk to me about the model minority stereotype. Why don't you tell our listeners, first of all, what we're talking about here? So in my experience, the model minority stereotype is when um, people of Asian descent living in the West are stereotyped to be very smart and successful and well off in life and are therefore stereotyped as such. And I think people don't see the harm it does because being intelligent isn't a quote unquote negative stereotype, but um, it's it's a myth because it ultimately does do harm to people in terms of creating pressure and unreasonable expectations. And that's kind of, I think, where a lot of um, my interviewees in my books, mental health woes stemmed from. So how do you see the model minority stereotype impacting those with ADHD? So for the few times that I've encountered someone, I think it impacts them in terms of creating unreasonable expectations, um, having people seeing their ethnicity, even if it's subconsciously seeing it as a reason for them not to have ADHD and therefore going undiagnosed for a long time, therefore um, creating the spiral of mental health woes in terms of low self-esteem, depression, anxiety, and just never getting it treated. Hmm. Absolutely. And how do you think family and parents can play into this? And I know that um, at least on in one of the articles on Attitude, you shared your own experiences with your family. So growing up, my mom and my dad, my mom has a master's degree. My dad has a PhD. So they worked hard to, to come to this country, give their family a good life, the typical immigrant story, you know. And so both parents were good academically growing up and therefore wanted the same of their children. 
So how this presented for me growing up is the fact that they work in engineering. And as I had mentioned earlier, my interest was in language arts, in liberal arts, in English and writing. And I struggled with math and science. I didn't like it. I didn't want to do it. I had no motivation to do it. So me and my parents would argue like clockwork about how much I need them in life to survive growing up starting in third grade. Yeah. Because they were highly educated, they could... um, they were able to make sure that I did things like hand in my homework on time. They would study with me for exams. They made sure that I got no, I would get shouted at for bringing home anything less than an A in any subject. And math and science were the subjects I could not, I kept bringing home less than A in. And I think by, it took until maybe early high school for them to finally ease up on their straight A expectations of me. And they told me it's okay to get half A's and half B's, but they'll give me a hundred dollars and let me choose the next family vacation if I get straight A's. (laughs) Well, and they care about you. They love you, right? And they Mm -hmm. thought that that was what was going to motivate you because they didn't realize that it really, that wasn't the problem. Yes. And I will say that um, there was a conversation I kind of had like, so I'll say that, so my brother is autistic. Um, He has the language of a little kid. He can't live independently. And he was diagnosed when he was a baby. And then when it came to my problems, I felt as though that both, I'm, I'm not just blaming family. Um, family, the school system, just saw me as a kid who was smart enough to do all these things but was too lazy to do so. So, like, my therapist was a little, she, she kind of said something like, you know, why didn't, if you've been having issues like missing instructions and not following directions and this and that for so long, like, they not a single teacher said anything. And then that's when I learned over time that females and quiet children are the ones that tend to get overlooked for neurodivergence. And I think that probably being a person, a woman of color probably added somewhat of an extra layer to that too, in some cases for some teachers. Um, The closest any teacher came to see checking out what was going on was in fourth grade when a teacher said, sent me for a hearing test because she said that she had to repeat instructions a lot for me. And I took longer than other kids to transition over to other classes. And I passed. So it was the same pattern over again of the teacher just complains to the parents and then I get shouted at at home. Hmm. So I think part of it is, I don't think, I know that part of it is you're not a problem at school. You know, you sit there quietly, you don't make trouble, you're not, you know, obnoxious in the classroom and distracting other kids. And so you're inattentive, I I would assume? Yes. Yeah. And it's, those are the girls that definitely do get overlooked. They keep to themselves, they're shy, they're good kids. Clearly, your teachers thought you were bright, but then you get that label that, oh, she's so bright. We know she's bright. So it must just be that she's lazy. She doesn't want to do it. Yeah, that's how, yeah, I think it was my parents who would kind of see it that way. Like, I'm not trying hard enough in this and that. But the truth is, like, when they put me to work, I would feel incredibly burnt out. And Mm -hmm. I I feel as though they don't see it that way now in that, you know, when they pushed me, I I achieved a lot. So they don't see how something could possibly, you know, be wrong. Whereas my argument is, why does it take me so much in order to achieve all that, like more energy to exert, more concentration to force myself to have in comparison to others. So are your parents aware of the fact that you wrote this book? 
Yes. And have they read it? Oh, yeah. They're very proud of it. And they're actually the ones getting me the sales by telling their own (laughs) friends and family about it. I love that. So are they seeing at all that maybe, obviously, they love you, they're proud of you, they want the best for you, but that maybe their strategies weren't the best? Or do they still think that, no, this is, is that what you were saying? That they're still saying, no, this is the right way to do, you know, we did what we should have done. I think they did the best with what they knew how to do. And I think that um, when I tell them about the diagnosis, um, I think that they can see some traits, but at the same time, they don't want to see me as a person like with the disorder itself. I don't know. It's because if they already have one child with a disorder, that it would just be painful to admit that another does. Or I think that also in Asian or in South Asians, I should say, I shouldn't speak for others. Like I think that they have South Asian culture has difficulty seeing nuances in mental health, which is why it's so stigmatized, is that the term mental health is associated often with being psychotic. Mm -hmm. So it's, I think, the functionalities that I think go swept under the rug in terms of high functioning, severe, those kinds of things. Um, And another point in me writing the book was to illustrate that you don't have to have like, be like schizophrenic or psychotic in order to benefit off of therapy and otherwise mental health treatments. A handful of the people in the book weren't formally diagnosed with something. Like I had some that simply went to see a therapist for like a breakup, for example. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So do your parents see, they must at this point see your strengths, like what you're really good at? Yes. And I think that they saw so much potential in me, which is why I was pushed so hard as a child too in the first place. I wonder if it's also a South Asian parenting thing to not give positive reinforcement to the child's face or something, too. Which we know how important positive emotion, right, is to us. I mean, that's really the only way you can motivate someone with ADHD. I guess a a big challenge would work, too. Fear only works for so long, and then we're just like, screw it, whatever. But positive emotion works every time. And I wonder if it's also like the lack of positive reinforcement to me is kind of, um, so it's kind of like how you might encounter some teachers that don't give out A's because they don't want the child to stop working hard. I wonder if some Asian parents think that way too. Ah, yeah, I I, I think you're absolutely right. I, I think I can see that in my <laughs> mm-hmm. in my family. I mean, we certainly were pressured to get straight A's. I had this sense, and you know, I'm not sure where I developed this sense, because when I really think about it, my parents never sat down and said, only science and math are worthy. But I left high school, my dad was a dentist, and I left high school with the plans that I was going to follow in my dad's footsteps, and I was going to be a dentist. And I almost flunked out my first year of college, because I had gone to an all-girls school, and They didn't really support us, to be honest, in the science and math. So I was really strong in all the other subjects. Even though I got A's in science and math in high school, I had to retake calculus and I had to retake, I think it was physics or biochemistry. I was just terrible at it. And I'll also say that an area where I differ from um, some, so a lot of the people that I wrote about in the book or a handful of them said that they were pressured to be like doctors when they grew up Um, Mm -hmm. in South Asian culture, being a doctor does symbolize status and success. And they just kind of went with it, didn't question it. And then in undergrad, they changed their majors. I will say that one thing where I differ is that from day one, as a little kid, 
I lived under the philosophy of if something doesn't make sense, why do it? If I don't like math and science, why do I have to do it? What's the point in regurgitating information just to get some letter mark in return? Yeah. Well, that I think is very ADHD. You know, we really (laughs) struggle because everybody's telling us what to do. And initially we do what they're telling us to do. But then we realize, you know, I'm not listening to you anymore because that friggin' doesn't work. (laughs) It just makes me crazy. So yes, I get that. Despite the fact that I did leave high school with this idea that if I wasn't a doctor, a dentist, or a lawyer, I would be a failure. And so when I ended up almost flunking out of school that first semester, actually it was probably the first year, I realized that I cannot do this dentistry major. I am not. And and honestly, the only reason I wanted to be a dentist so I could be Dr. Otsuka. I mean, that's how lame it was. (laughs) But that's kind of how I how I grew up, what I grew up thinking. And I, I don't even know if I can blame my family about that. You know, partly, yes. I mean, clearly, you know, my Japanese father and my German mother, they really cared about education. But I don't know if they ever rammed that down my throat, but it was something that's I, maybe, you know, was society <laughs> that um, made me feel like those were the worthy subjects. And I remember going into the college counselor's office when I realized that I've got to change my major. I'm not going to be able to compete here. And I'm never going to be able to make it into dental school. And I, I looked at him and I said, well, I can't be a doctor. I can't be a dentist. So the only thing that's left is a lawyer. So I'm going to change my major to political science. And he looked at me and he said, that is not the way you choose a major, but it's what <laughs> I did. <laughs> and, and in truth, I've always felt I was good in those subjects or much better in those subjects. And I've always felt that a law degree for, especially for a girl, a young woman is not a bad thing to have because it teaches you how to think differently. The Socratic method, right? You're always asking questions rather than just regurgitating a bunch of information and memorizing it. So I'm very grateful for my law degree. But I'm not sure that that is the way you should choose a major either. (laughs) Now that I'm older. Yeah. And I think similarly, um, it wasn't, I think that it was an obligation for me to like, even just go to college because my parents are super highly educated too. And I wanted to be a journalist because I loved writing, but then they said, you should pair it with something more practical. So then I studied marketing too. I do think that it was, it was a good degree to get, but at the same time, I feel like I wish I got to know myself and what I really want better before I settled on a major. Um, so I will say that my attitude, or I as a person grew from the attitude of, I only want to do what I'm passionate about to money may not buy happiness, but you do need it. So let me find a career that I at least like to some degree that can also pay the bills. And that's why I went from working in freelance journalism and marketing communications to now on the business side of IT. Makes sense to me. You know, my husband's uncle used to say, money doesn't buy you happiness, but it allows you, it sure allows you to look in the right places. (laughs) (laughs) That's true too. So Mirnal, what is your message to parents? If there's a parent listening and they're putting all this pressure on their kids to get those straight A's to, you know, it's only about science and math. What is your message to them given your ADHD brain and your experiences? 
Well, if I were to become a parent anytime soon, if at all, um, I'm just going to listen to my kids when they say I like this and I don't like that because they're telling me who they are as far as they're concerned. And I think that you can only try so hard when it comes to nature versus nurture to kind of nurture the nature out of a child. (laughs) That is really good advice. So tell me, what is it about you and your ADHD that makes you so good at what you do? So I've come to notice, I think, that um, when I have a deep interest in a task, I'm able to really hyper-focus in on it. And I would say that probably the biggest flex that I've made due to that is writing a book in just four months, 230 pages. And that is so ADHD, right? When we (laughs) hyper-focus because we want to do something, there is no stopping us. So that must have been a huge lesson for you, huh? Yes, all while maintaining a full-time job. So quarantine did me some good, unlike some people. Wow, I'm impressed. So what do you think the key to living successfully with ADHD is? I would say learn as much about yourself as a person as you possibly can. Don't box yourself in, but also know your limits at the same time. Um, Be open-minded, understand that things like healing, things like finding what works for you isn't always a linear process try multiple, you may have to try multiple things. You may have to try them over extended periods of times. You may have to experience a couple setbacks and that goes from everything from Eastern and Western medicine alike, from from different therapy types to different medications to different um, holistic remedies from diet to, and fitness to mindfulness to um, to spiritualism. I think that's brilliant advice because we have this idea that, well, if it worked, and I hear this in my Facebook group, the big group all the time, well, I tried this medicine or I tried this, you know, and this isn't working. So what's worked for you? And it's kind of like, it doesn't really matter because we are all so different. And that's what makes ADHD so, so hard, actually, because the same thing, you know, what works for you won't necessarily work for me. And it's really all about trying things. So I, I think that is brilliant advice. It's a spectrum. One, yeah, it is a spectrum. You're absolutely right. So one last question. Do you have an ADHD workaround that you want to share with us? What's a workaround? <laughs> <laughs> Something like for me, I have this Datix cube that has all these times around it. 25 minutes is the one that I use and it's a timer. So if I am struggling to start because that's what we struggle to do at times, I get out of my head and I get into action. And the way I do that is it's sitting on my desk. So I always believe with ADHD, out of sight, out of mind. So these things have to be there ready to go. And I literally just flip it on its end And I don't think about anything except for all you have to do is 25 minutes. If you want to stop, you can stop, but you're starting now. And I start. And usually I start and I don't want to stop. So that's (laughs) my way of starting. Do you have anything like that that works for you? Um, Something similar. I don't know if Pomodoro method might be similar to what you're saying. Yeah, it is. It's a form of the Pomodoro. Mm -hmm. Yep. So I like to just go use my timer for that for the for 25 minutes per task. I think it helps me immensely when I've got multiple projects for work going um, in terms of being able to meet deadlines for those multiple projects and also being able to force my brain to kind of not get so stuck on one thing. So Mernal, do you ever have problems starting to write or do you have such an interest in writing that you could write 24-7 all day? Yeah, I will agree that um, 
that starting things in general can be difficult for me. I think that once I did get started, though, I really just kept going. Um, but when I was getting like that initial like writer's block and all that, I think that's where like things like setting timers helps in terms of use this time frame to think about what you're going to write or maybe develop an outline as to what you're going to write or do some research on what you're going to write and then walk away from it and give your brain a break. So even though you love to write, you are clearly such a talented writer, even you struggle to start writing. Yes. And I will say that it probably is a bit more difficult on things like tight deadlines or when I've got a lot of things to do or what when what I'm writing about may not be so exciting. Well, that makes me feel better about myself. So thank you for sharing <laughs> that. <laughs> so Miranal, where can people find you if they want to know more about you and what you do? I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Instagram. Those are probably just the best ways to reach me. And then I can also provide my email address. Okay, so on Instagram, do you know what your handle is there? Yes, um, Lotus underscore MKG. Lotus underscore MKG. Yep, M is in Mary, K is in Kite, G is in Goat. Perfect. We're going to have all these in the show notes too. And on LinkedIn, is it just your name? Yes. Okay, which is, am I, it's... It's the way it's spelled in the episode 129. <laughs> right, and then your last name is G-O-K-H-A-L-E. Okay. Mm-hmm. Again, I will have this in the show notes. And your email? It's just my first name, period, last name, one at gmail.com. Okay. So it's M-R-I-N-A-L-1 at gmail.com? M-R-I-N-A-L, period, G-O-K-H-A-L-E, one at gmail.com. Okay. Perfect. Gmail.com. And let me just mention the book one more time. Saya Unveiled, South Asian Mental Health Spotlighted, and it is available on Amazon. Yep. Mirnal, thank you so much for spending time with us here today. I just loved talking to you about all of this. So I really appreciate you being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. Absolutely. So that's what I have for you for this week. Don't forget that we are opening enrollment for... Your ADHD brain is A-OK on Friday. It's that six-step system to help you answer that what do I do with my life question. And if you want more information on the program, check out episodes 91 and 92 of this podcast. You can also join our waitlist at tracyoutsuka.com forward slash waitlist. If you like this episode with Miranal, please let us know by leaving a review. Our goal is to change the conversation around ADHD, helping as many women as we possibly can learn how their ADHD brains work so that they too may discover their amazing strengths. And you know what? Your reviews really do help in that regard. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you here next week. You've been listening to the ADHD for Smartass Women podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Outsuka, and we're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Not coincidentally, ADHD for Smartass Women, it's also the name of our free Facebook group. We're a totally smartass community of successful, ambitious women who share our ADHD wins, questions, and workarounds. Join us at tracyoutsuka.com where you can also find more information on our Your ADHD Brain is A-OK system. I spy a happier life for us, and I'll see you again next week.